It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. How's everybody today? Okay, well, it's our last Sunday of Hebrew lessons, so hopefully everybody's uh, doing really well. One more time. Shalom? Hello. Okay, all right. Hey, all right. All right, well, hey, today is um, the last feast we're going to cover for the fall. Um, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, you may have noticed a strange construction out there, out there in our lobby area, um, and that's what we call a sukkah. At least that's our that's our version of a sukkah. Um, but uh, I, and I, w- I just want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Colson and Joy who did a great job uh, putting it together and decorating it. So thank you guys very much for that. Uh, but with that, let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We are grateful to be called your own. We are grateful, Lord, to be. Uh, your sons and daughters, uh, we are uh, adopted, we are, uh, Lord, redeemed, we are brought in, brought near uh, to, uh, to you. We who were far off, uh, we who were uh, out there on our own wandering in sin and wandering in this desert, Lord God, you have covered us, you have called us, you have blessed us, you have saved us, Lord. So we are so grateful to be your children. And so now, Lord, as we uh, complete uh, our study of the appointed times, the moed uh, that, that you have established, Lord God, we just pray that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds. I pray that you would give each and every one of us something from this message that we can take and apply in our hearts. I think about Mary as she, as the Word of God records that she, she hid these things in her heart and she meditated on him, Lord. So you've called us to meditate on your word. You've called us to, to, to turn them over, to think about them, and then you called us to apply them. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to apply these truths. In the name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen. So, uh, so again, we are in Leviticus chapter 23. And um, as we've started with uh, all of the uh, previous messages, we're going to recapitulate. We're going to reinforce this topic right here, because when we're talking about the appointed feast, a lot of times we think that these are just, well, this is what this is just what Israel has come up with. But let's let's read this again. Verse Leviticus 23, verse one through two. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feast. 
So these feasts belong to the Lord. God has set aside these seven feasts. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Uh, we talked about when we first uh, started this journey, we said that the first four feasts he has already redeemed through or he has already uh, fulfilled through his son, Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled Passover. He's fulfilled uh, the Feast of Unloving Bread. He has fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits. He has fulfilled the Feast of the Harvest. We have that fulfillment through Jesus. We talked about the church being born uh, on Pentecost or Shavuot. And we talked about how now we have three feasts in the fall, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And now we have the Feast of Tabernacles and they are yet to be prophetically fulfilled. So what that means for us, church, is that uh, we are looking to the day when one day our King Jesus, Yeshua, will fulfill each and every one of these. And we talked about trumpets, we talked about Yom Kippur, and now we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. And last Sunday, if you remember, when we were talking about atonement, we said, or the Day of Atonement, that time of atonement, uh, that time of those days of awe, we said that right now for Jews in Israel, it is not a joyous occasion. It is an occasion of breaking. It is a an occasion where they are searching their hearts. It is an occasion where they are afflicting their spirits. Why? Because the temple doesn't exist. There are no lambs to sacrifice. And so therefore, the only way they can be sure or the only way they can hope that, that God will write their name in the book of life for the next year is if they do this measure of teshuvah, this, this measure of brokenness, this measure of repentance, but they have no guarantee. And so their praise and their hopes and their prayers are prayers of hope. Whereas we believers who believe in Yeshua, who have acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, the one who was redeemed, we acknowledge that he has come and he's coming again. And so our manner of conduct as believers is a manner of confidence, confidence that God has called us, confidence that God has redeemed us, confidence that God has saved us, and confidence, confidence that God will one day bring us home. And so we have that confidence as believers in Christ. So that takes us to this feast. So as I said before, last week, the, the observers in, in, in Judaism, it's not a time of joy, but for us, it can be a time of joy. But this one right now, this is the time of joy. This is the time where they're having a good time. So let's dig into it. Now, if you want to know from a background, when did the Feast of Tabernacles take place this year? So it started on Tuesday, September 21st. That was the first day. And it ends on next Tuesday, September 28th. So uh, it kind of works out. Um, if you guys want to run home after service today and build your little, you know, sukkah, you know, uh, get a little tent, put a tent in the backyard, something like that, hang out, um, you know, cook some uh, hot dogs, just make sure they're kosher. Um, just kidding. Um, cook some hot dogs, hang out with the kids, sleep in a tent, whatever. You still got time to do it. You still got time. Uh, but for the Jews today, um, they are camping out, they're hanging out. In fact, go online, you'll look at some really cool, elaborate booths. Uh, in fact, there's a, uh, I saw on Facebook, there's, a, there's this image of a guy, he made a portable sukkah. He's kind of like just, it's like on a little motorbike. So he's running around, riding around all Jerusalem with his little portable sukkah. I thought it was kind of cool too. But anyway, there are several names for this. We can call it the Feast of Booths. We can call it the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, in Hebrew, it's, a, it's called a sukkah, or so the feast itself is called Sukkot. Um, and so there are, um, 
in the Torah, they call it Chag Ha'asif, which means festival and in gathering or harvest festival. Shag uh, Ha'asukot, which means uh, happy, uh, happy festival of booths or festival. Shag can sometimes mean festival as well. Uh, it is a seven-day festival today in Israel. Uh, the first day is celebrated as a full festival with special prayer services, and they have holiday meals uh, outside of Israel. If you don't live there, then uh, the first two days are celebrated as full festivals. The seventh day of Sukkot uh, today is called Hoshana Rabbah, which means a great Hoshana, referring to the tradition that worshipers in the synagogue will walk around the perimeter of the sanctuary during morning services, and it has a special observance of its own. Uh, work is forbidden in Israel today, so you don't, uh, you won't see people doing certain types of work. Most, it's, it's not as solemn as Yom Kippur, where everything stops. But they will. There are certain types of businesses and certain types of things that that won't be happening uh, during this time. Um, and when we start talking about this a little bit more, as we kind of look at it, what's happening in Israel uh, after. Um, when the festival closes down, there's another holiday that they institute. They call that Shemini Adzeret. Um, and it's one day in the land of Israel, two days in the diaspora. The diaspora just means the, the, the scattering of people, uh, Israel, Israelis or Jews throughout the world. And what's special is that the second day is called Simchat Torah, which means the joy of the Torah. So they get together and they read the Torah. Uh, they read God's word. Um, unfortunately, they don't read all of God's word, but they just read the first five books of Moses. And so that's kind of how things are. And throughout the week, uh, they will eat their meals in the sukkah. So it's kind of kind of a cool occasion. It's a joyous occasion. They're hanging out. They're celebrating. Um, all sorts of stuff is going on and, and yada, yada, yada. But as always, as believers, here we are today. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does the Bible say? So let's find out what does God's word say. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter twenty-three. We're going to look down, starting where to from. We're going to go from verse thirty-three to forty-four. We're going to finish this chapter, and so starting at verse thirty-three, we have the introduction of the feast of tabernacles. So verse thirty-three. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be called the feast of tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord." So just uh, kind of reminding ourselves of the, uh, the ceremonial Hebrew calendar. Uh, the first month is the month of Nisan. Nisan is where we see God proclaiming to Moses and, and therefore to the people that this time of Passover, this shall be the first month for you. And this particular month, the seventh month then, counting down from Nisan, is the month of Tishrei. So Tishrei, the seventh month of the ceremonial year, is a very solemn and holy month. And of course that makes sense because you think about the number seven, uh, the significance of the number seven uh, throughout the Bible. We, we see in six days God created the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested. All right, so we see that replete throughout scriptures, uh, the importance of the number seven. And so there's a holiness, more so than the other uh, months, there's a special holiness associated with this month. Why? Because we said it starts with the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the blowing of the shofars, right? And declaring, uh, the, declaring and preparing the people uh, to begin the 10 days of awe, 
where then on, on the 10th day, they walk in the high priest, the, uh, the high, uh, which would have been Aaron or, or the, someone who was descended from the line of Aaron, they will go into the Holy of, Holy of Holies and they will lay upon the Holy of Holies and they will sacrifice, they'll cover it with blood. And we talked about that last Sunday. And this is the day where the sins of the people are covered. And therefore, for the next year, uh, now there is a reestablishment, a re reconciliation of God with his nation. They call it atonement, at one man again with the people and with the Lord. And then after this, after the Holy of Holies, after this day of this this day of solemn um, of concentration, now we have the festival of booths. So all this happens in this one month. Let's talk about this word, Sukkot. Um, actually, it literally just means booths. But the first time we see this in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 33, verse 17. And it says, And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And so what I want you to take from that, this, is, uh, this scene is happening after Jacob has met his brother Esau, uh, coming back from the land where, where coming back with his wives and his children uh, from Laban. And, and now Jacob is finally following God, uh, encountering God. Uh, his name's going to be changed to Israel. Uh, and so he's journeying here and he comes to this place, but he doesn't come to this place permanently. He stays here temporarily because we see later on in verse 18 that he journeys to Shechem and there he's establishing himself and he's establishing his family. So it literally was a temporary dwelling place for himself. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's something we need to take from this, that the Feast of Tabernacles is important because it emphasizes the, the temporalness of this life and understanding that we must rely upon God for this life. So Sukkot is a plural of sukkah or booth. Uh, a booth uh, today in Israel, uh, it could be anything they could, like we have out there in the foyer. You could use a, a metal tent you could, as long as you're covering it and decorating it. Um, but basically, it's a walled structure. Typically, what you'll see is that it's a three-walled structure. So you have walls on the sides and a wall in the back, and then you open. The front wall is open, so there's nothing there. Um, and it's covered on three sides. Um, some of the history is that farmers, when they would go out to get the harvest, they would build these temporary structures to live in, uh, to sleep in, to hang out in, while they're in the process of bringing in the harvest. Um, and then it's also, when we think about it in Leviticus, it's kind of rem reminiscent of the fragile dwellings the Israelites dwelt in during the 40 years of travel. Uh, as I said before, modern sukkahs can be constructed of any material. It could be wood, canvas, aluminum sidings, uh, sheets, whatever. Um, and, but the roof has to be organic material. So we kind of failed on that one. But you have to put like palm fronds, uh, plant material. Uh, it has you know, something that was from the earth but is no longer connected to the earth. So that's supposed to cover it. It's okay. It's our first try at this. So no big deal. All right, so that takes us to offerings and assemblies. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 35 through 38. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. 
For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Now notice in verse 36, we have several things repeated. Number one, you have, you shall do no customary work. Number two, it, you shall make an offering by fire, right? And um, sort of, uh, sort of uh, in, in, encapsulating all of that is, it's a sacred assembly. In verse 37, he goes on to say, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. You know, when God often repeats something over and over again, he's trying to make a point. And he's, um, and not only we're going to see this, but he's going he's gonna to see later on we're in this chapter, we're going to see him start all over again and reassess some of the same points that we saw here before. Verse 37, again, these are the feasts of the Lord. We saw that earlier in the beginning of the chapter, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. So, uh, so in other words... As we said before, there was always a morning offering, there was always an evening offering, there was an offering on Sabbath, there was an offering on a new month, there was an offering on these special occasions. So in addition to all these other offerings, which also you could make an offering for a vow, maybe you're making a vow to the Lord, you're saying, Lord, if you bless me this year, uh, I promise uh, to walk with you, I promise to do these things, or it could be a free will offering. Lord, you've been so good to me. I just want to give this to you. I, I want to. I want to express how much I love you. So you have all these offerings, but none of those offerings could take the place uh, of what this what this particular holy occasion is. And these offerings that you give to the Lord during this feast, they are offerings made by fire. It is a all-consuming offering. And whenever I think of an offering of fire, I can't help but think about the fact that, you know, fire completely consumes, completely consumes. It breaks something down. It breaks organic material down into the fact, into its most basic bare elements. And God is calling us that. He's calling us to that. He's saying, look, I want my life to be completely consumed by the Spirit of God, right? I want everything of who I am to be broken down, my most basic element, who I am, I want it to be completely consumed by the fire of God's Holy Spirit. And so that's what God is inviting them into. He's inviting us into that as well. He's saying, look, will you give me your life? I will test you by fire. I will take you through the trial of fire, but you will come through. And when you come through, you will not look like the person you were before. You will look like something else. You will look like something more beautiful. You will look like something more loving. You will look like someone more kind, more gracious, more generous. You will look like someone who has more self-control. In other words, you will look like my son Jesus. God is calling us to make a holy offering. He is calling us to give him an all-consuming offering. In other words, he is calling us to give him ourselves and all of ourselves and not hold anything back. 
And so he was expressing the same thing. He's like, when you come and you have this convocation, this is a set-apart convocation. This is not like any other convocation. This is a holy convocation. Don't do any customary work on it. This is to be exalted and different and sanctified from all the other works that you do. And you shall make an offering of fire to the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, um, one thing to notice here is that this was one of three pilgrimage feasts. Now, we said, we said that there are seven feasts, right? Uh, of those seven, three of those feasts were deemed to be pilgrimage feasts. And what do we mean by pilgrimage feasts? A pilgrimage feast was a feast which required all the men of Israel to appear before God in the place that he chose during that time. Chapter 16, verse 16 says, Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord thy God in a place which he shall choose, which he shall choose. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles. Translation, Passover, Pentecost, Booths. Passover, they were required to go down to Jerusalem when the temple was constructed. But where did they go before the temple was constructed? Great question. They went wherever the tabernacle was. Before, it was in Shiloh. Uh, for a time, it was in Bethel. But notice it says, in the place where he shall choose. God never told them where he would choose to place his name. God never, never told them when they came out of Egypt that Jerusalem was the place where the temple would be built. I don't know if you know that. So for many years, they had no idea what God meant by this verse. They had no idea of the physical location as to where the temple would be, where God would choose, until David decided it would be a great idea to count how many people were in Israel. David had conquered um, uh, uh, Jerusalem, as we know it, he had established the city of David. One day, uh, the previous chapter says that uh, they had killed the last of the giants of Gath. And so uh, Satan uh, moved him, or, or, or Satan in anger uh, tried to get back at David. And so David has this foolish and uh, foolhardy thought that he's going to number the people of Israel. Uh, uh, his, his general says that's probably not a good idea but he does it anyway. And then once he's done counting how many people there are, why is this such a big deal? Because David was emphasizing that he was no longer trusting in God, but he was trusting in his army. He was trusting in how many people they had to provide. And remember, God said, I did not choose Israel because you were the greatest nation. I did not choose you because you were mighty in warfare. You were smaller than everybody else. I chose you because I decided to put my love upon you. And therefore, God is saying, look, I am going to safeguard you. I'm going to raise you up, David. David, I'm going to give you everything you need. Just trust me. And so David, in this foolhardy moment, foolish moment, he forgets that. He counts the people, and God says, uh, you've blown it, dude, and gives him three choices. He gives him the choice of fleeing from his enemies. Uh, he gives him uh, a choice of uh, being stranded. I think, uh, I forgot that one. But the last choice he gives them is a plague, and 70,000 Israelites lost their lives. And um, in that moment, as David is repenting 
Um, it says that he went up to the threshing floor of this guy named Ornan. And Ornan uh, chose to say, hey, look, you know, you are David. I respect you. I'm going to give you this threshing floor. You can have it. And David says, I will not give to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And so he buys the threshing floor from Ornan. And in the process of buying the threshing floor from Ornan, the, not only the floor itself, but the oxen and the, uh, uh, the wood, he, he builds a tabernacle, he slays the ox, and they see the angel of the Lord there. And when they put the angel of the Lord, when they put the ox on the, the altar, it says fire came down from heaven. And the angel of the Lord rose through fire. And that's when they knew this was the place that the temple was supposed to be constructed. But they didn't know that until that happened. Isn't it cool, though, how like Satan tries to derail our lives? You know, how the enemy tries to like turn our lives upside down, and it looks like our life is a disaster, but God? God comes in, and he makes beauty out of ashes. He takes that which should have been for our destruction, and he completely turns it around and makes something wonderful come out of it. Um, I've definitely seen that in my life. Hopefully, you've seen that in your life. But it's just amazing to me to see that. And in, in the days of Solomon and Herod's temple, uh, getting back to this, this is a place now where God has established they are to make this pilgrimage. So um, before this happened, as they are wandering through the wilderness, where is the tabernacle? Where is the presence of God? It's in the middle of the camp. So they would come and they would appear before God in the middle of the camp during these appointed times, during these pilgrimage, these pilgrimage feasts. But once the temple was established, now men from the north of Israel, from Dan all the way to Beersheba, the south of Israel, they had to journey to, Israel, to Jerusalem and they had to do these three times a year. And so uh, during Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, all Israelites, Jewish men would come. And now if this sounds familiar, it should sound familiar. There's a portion of the Psalms dedicated to this. It's called the Psalms of the Ascents. Um, if you're familiar with Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. That's a Psalm of Ascent. Uh, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Uh, all these Psalms, you'll, you'll read them starting at about Psalm 120, I think to Psalm 134. These are Psalms of Ascent. In other words, these are things that they would sing on the road up to Jerusalem. And by the way, if you're going to look in Scripture, you'll notice something in Scripture. Whenever you're talking about going to Jerusalem, it's always characterized as going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you're actually coming from a location that's uh, physically higher. It's always called going up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is seen as the holy place, the holiest place in the land of Israel. And so therefore, no matter where you're coming from, you're always going up to Jerusalem. And so that's why they're called Songs of Ascent. They're going up to Jerusalem. By the way, remember that time where it, um, uh, Jesus and his family are in Jerusalem and his family, they start heading back and they're like, anybody seen Jesus? Anybody seen that boy? Where is he? That's what they were doing. They were on one of the pilgrimage feasts, going up to the temple and spending time with the Lord. And so now they were coming back and what was Jesus doing? He was busy about his father's business. So this ceremony introduced, um, um, oh, but then there's one special thing that would happen also. So three times a year, they're going up. So Feast of Tabernacles is one of those times. It's one of those appointed times, pilgrimage feasts that they're going up. Um, but then something else would happen. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 10 through 13, it kind of explains it, but let me just read verse 10. It says, and Moses commanded them saying, at the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, 
in the Feast of Tabernacles, basically they are to stand and read the word of God. And so this is what we were talking about before and I was talking about Simchat Torah, the joy of the Torah. Um, every seven years following, which we would call a Shemitah, right? they would go and they would stand and hear God's word. If this sounds familiar, think about Ezra. Think about as they're coming out of Babylon and they're standing and the word of God is being read, right? So that's what that, but what's special is that the king or the leader was supposed to read the word of God. Man, how awesome would it be if our, our president would stand up in front of Congress and read God's word? How awesome would that be? If the word of God would have read publicly across this nation, so that everyone who's hearing, so like, okay, this is the God that we follow. Uh, this is his law. Uh, this is what makes him happy. This is what pleases him. This is how I can walk with him. How awesome would it be when I, if our leaders were so dialed in into God's truth and God's word that they would stand publicly before the congregation of this country and they would read God's word. Now, it's not happening, but you know what? We are in different spheres of influence. We are... Are, are given and privileged that opportunity to be readers of the word of God. Whether it's our schools, whether it's our jobs, wherever it is, you know, we can be the word of God to people in our lives. We can read God's word. We can share the word of God. We can share God's heart because really that's why this world is perishing because they don't know the heart of God. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know the beauty of worshiping the Lord. And so we can be those people, in fact, Peter calls us, uh, we are a royal priesthood, all right? We are given and afforded this opportunity and privilege as believers in Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We have his word abiding in us. And all we need to do is just be there and open our mouths and proclaim the goodness of God. So that takes us to the next section. So we talked about uh, the importance of this, 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 this feast. We talked about uh, some of the things that are happening here. It's an appointed day. It's a holy convocation. No customary work. Offerings made by fire. Uh, let's talk about the multiple Sabbath rest. Verse 39, Leviticus 23. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. And on the fifth, first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. So what we're saying here is that uh, when last, last Tuesday, basically last Tuesday was a Sabbath. So not only would you have had the Sabbath on Saturday, all right, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, when they started the Feast of Tabernacles, that Tuesday became a Sabbath. And that Tuesday, basically, they're not to do, let's go back up to the previous verse section, uh, 35 through 38. On that Tuesday, they were not to do any customary work. On that Tuesday, they would have proclaimed that as a holy convocation. On that Tuesday, they would have made offerings by fire. On that Tuesday, they would have had a sacred assembly to the Lord. But not only on that Tuesday, but also next Tuesday. This next Tuesday is also to be a Sabbath. And then... A Sabbath, uh, I'm sorry, uh, next Wednesday, it says a Sabbath on the first day and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. So basically you have this holiday that's uh, bookended by two Sabbaths. 
So establishing, hey, we're going to have joy, joy, joy. We're going to have this celebration, and we're going to have a Sabbath rest at the beginning, and we're going to have a Sabbath rest at the end. And I think that's a beautiful picture of salvation. I think it's a beautiful picture because it's salvation is declared at the beginning. Right? You think about this. At the very beginning of all this, when Adam and Eve fell in a garden, God declared his salvation. God declared that his son, he would send his son into the world under the most extreme or unrealistic circumstances. The seed of a woman would bring forth a Messiah. God declared from the beginning his salvation. But at the end of all this, at the end of the age, God is going to declare his salvation again. He's going to declare, look, I have sent my son, and now all the kingdoms of the world belong to our God. And so it's in this time, this time of celebration, this time of joy, and this time of a feast, we have this time, we have this time of joy, we have this time of celebration, because salvation has been declared from the beginning and from the end. And here we are, surrounded by the love of God. Deuteronomy 16, verse 13 says, You shall observe the feast of tabernacle seven days. I want you to notice something. After you've gathered your corn and your wine. Now, this is important to understand because, again, this is a pilgrimage feast. This means that they are to travel to Jerusalem. But God understanding where they are, God is saying, look, I want you to travel after you've gathered your harvest. This is after you brought your first fruit in. That's why it's called the Feast of Ingathering. After you brought everything in from the, store, from, the, from the fields, your wheat, your barley, your grain, whatever it is, after you brought this in, now as you see how God has blessed you, as you see how God has provided for you, as you see how God has been faithful to his word to never leave you or forsake you, to take care of all your needs, he knows the things that you have need of. As you see how God has richly pressed down, shaken together, running over, brought goodness into your life, now your response is, okay, Lord, I'm coming to hang out with you. And you know, that should be our response as believers. When we take stock, when we look at what God has done, you know, you've heard the phrase, count your blessings. Most of the time we count our complaints. We complain about things. We think about what we don't have instead of focusing on what God has given us. And so when we count our blessings, when we add them up, when we uh, um, um, use whatever means of accounting uh, to realize what God has done, our natural response should be, you know what, I want to go spend time with God. Lord, you're so good to me. You're so amazing. I want to spend time with you. I'm going to get up and go and, and rest in you. I'm going to get up and go and rejoice in you. And by the way, this was a festive occasion. This is occasion where they are, are singing. This is occasion where they are dancing. This is occasion where they are having joy before God. And God is like, look, no, I'm, no, I'm not. God's not like some Baptist preacher up there. He's not like, hey, you're dancing around. I don't really approve of that, by the way. You're singing and stuff like that. I don't really approve of that. No, God is like welcoming this because this is a communion of joy. This is a communion of joy between the Father and his people. 
And he's saying, look, I have given you these seven days. I want you to come before me. Let's move on to verse 40, waving of the four plants. You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. What does that say? You shall be solemn. You shall be glum. You shall be depressed. You shall be upset. No, what does it say? You shall what? Rejoice. God is calling us into a relationship of joy. He loves us. He rejoices over us with singing. He draws us with cords of love. I want you to understand something. The God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who created everything, rejoices over you. He loves you. No matter what is going on in your life right now, no matter what you're dealing with, take that truth, take it to the bank. God in heaven loves you, and not only does he love you, he rejoices over you, and he is inviting us to rejoice with him. And one day, we will. But that, that day could be today. We can rejoice right now in God. We can choose to look at our lives and say, you know what? I'm going to rejoice. In my pain, I'm going to rejoice. In my sufferings, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice because as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, chapter eight verse 18, the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that we're going to have in Christ Jesus. Remember, what does the word of God say? Jesus said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Who was the joy? Turn to your neighbor to your left. Colson, who's, who's your joy? Turn to the person to the right of you. Turn to the person to the left of you. Look behind you. Guess what? You're his joy. You are the reason Jesus endured the cross. You are the reason he suffered shame. Because he looked at you with love and he looked at you with joy. And I think sometimes we think like, okay, yeah, God loves me. I get that. I get that. But man, to think that God rejoices over me. I, you know, I make stupid decisions. I say stupid things. I, I have horrible attitudes. I, I'm mean to people sometimes. But yet still, if I'm a believer, if, if the Holy Spirit is in me, God rejoices over me. He's called me his own. And he's inviting me. He's inviting me to rejoice with him. And so the people of Israel are invited. Now, here it says that you shall take for yourselves four. Four branches or four, they, they call them today, they call them species. It's kind of, kind of weird. Four species, kind of weird kind of thing to think of that. But it's a waving ceremony. And um, this is a part of the way you worship the Lord. Um, you take usually your grain offerings, and you wave them before God. You wave them. There's another uh, sacrifice where you bow. You take, the, you take the meat and you bow before God. It's all symbolic of our gesture of worship. Um, and what are these species? Well, we talked about, is we see here, we have uh, palm trees. We have um, fruit of uh, citrus free tr trees. It says the fruit of beautiful trees, but that's usually translated as citrus, citrus trees. Sorry. Uh, then it says uh, uh, thick leafy trees as well, the boughs of leafy trees. And then finally, you have willows of the brook. Now, I'm not quite sure of all the symbolism uh, associated 
with that. And you know what? I, I would leave that for you guys to go and research that, to go and, and find out what God is trying to say uh, through all that. Uh, in, in Hebrew, though, it's called arbat ha'aminim. Uh, arba means four. Um, these are four plants. Uh, again, it's established here in Levit Leviticus chapter uh, 23, verse 30. And so as we uh, see it, there, there is uh, symbolism, there's, um, there's something going on here. I'm not quite sure what it is, but again, I invite you all to do your own personal study and um, see what the Lord shares with you. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 14, getting back on that theme of rejoicing, this is another passage. Remember, Deuteronomy is sort of recapitulating everything that God has spoken to Moses to the people just before they're about to go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 14 through 15, and you shall rejoice in your feasts. There's that word again. You, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow that are within your gates. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your station in life is, God is calling you and inviting you to a holy convocation, but a convocation that is filled from beginning to end with rejoicing. Seven days you shall keep a solemn feast unto the Lord your God in a place which the Lord shall choose. We found out later on that that was going to be Jerusalem. Because the Lord your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands, and therefore you shall surely rejoice. And there it is. Why are we rejoicing? Because we recognize God's blessings on our lives. It is hard to rejoice when you don't see the goodness of the Lord. But remember what David said. I was young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. David understood something. He's communicating something to us. That in all his life, he has seen the faithfulness of God. No matter what the circumstances were, maybe he didn't understand it at that time. But as time goes on, he begins to look back on situations. It's probably not happy or fun to be ducking spears from Saul. But as he looks back on it, he sees the faithfulness of God and the blessings in what was happening. How God was using that situation to make him and shape his character so that he would become the king that God called him to be. And so no matter what we're going through, and we're going through it, we can rejoice because God has called all things to work together for the good of those who love him. But you know what likes to keep us from remembering that? The world, the enemy, and our flesh. We battle against these three monsters. And I'll be honest with you, it's probably my flesh that I have to worry about more so than anything else. My flesh is so evil. Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? The things Paul wanted to do, his flesh was against. The things he didn't want to do, his flesh was like, yeah, let's do it. This battle that went on in Paul's life between his spiritual man and his flesh every single day, which will I do? Will I do the things that please God or will I do the things that give glory to my flesh? And Paul found himself to the point where he said, you know what? I got to trust in the Lord. I got to get my eyes on Jesus. I got to make sure I am meditating on God's word. 
Because if I don't, my flesh will take over and God will not be glorified, but my flesh will be exalted. And I will miss everything that God is doing. I'll miss his blessings. I'll miss the rejoicing that I could have. I'll be a Christian who's saved by a joyful, loving God who has no joy. How attractive is that? You want me to follow Jesus? Paul said, remember, follow me as I follow Christ. What is Paul's going around glum and absolutely angry at the world and everybody else and horrible attitude? You want to follow that? No. Follow me as I follow Jesus. How do I need to follow Jesus? I need to recognize and open my eyes to what God has done. Therefore, I can rejoice in him. That takes us to the next section. Leviticus 23, verse 41 through 43. The command, repeat it, and the reason explained. You shall keep it, verse 41, as a feast of the Lord for seven days in a year. It shall be a statue forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, we're going to finally kind of get a little bit more into this whole booth thing. We've been talking about uh, the festival itself, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to celebrate it. But let's, let's, let's get into the, the nitty gritty of the booth. In verse 43, he's saying you should do this so that your generations may know what? That I, the Lord, made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's a calling back to what God has done. You see, this is mentioned in the book of Exodus as well. In the book of Exodus chapter 34 and verse 32, it says, you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering, that's what we're talking about, ingathering at the year's end, right? So it's more of a look, this is, a, uh, this is agricultural. But here in Leviticus, we understand, we, we receive the, the religious significance here. And that it is talking about, look, not only is he, are you celebrating this because it's a feast of ingathering, but it's a reminder that you were completely dependent upon God. By the way, where did God take them through from Egypt on the way to Canaan? Did he take them through rolling hills and forests? Did he take them through pasteurized lands? Did he take them through uh, green pastures or just uh, beautiful rivers and stuff like that and verdant fields? No, he took them through a what? He took them through a desert. What's in a desert? 7-Eleven? Burger King? Chick-fil-A? What's in a desert? Nothing. What's really scary about what's in a desert or what's lacking in a desert? Water. If you don't have water... First of all, you're in trouble. Second of all, your livestock's in trouble. How are you going to grow things? And so for 40 years, God took them through a desert. And they dwelt in booths. And so the simple, the symbology is, look, I took care of you for 40 years. I protected you. I fed you. I gave you water. I gave you shelter. I was your covering. And if I did it then, I can do it again. And so they are to remember, this is what God has done. This is why they're celebrating. Part of it is like, hey, I'm celebrating for what he's done. 
I'm celebrating for God's provision for our people way back when, but I'm also celebrating, remember, the first is a Sabbath. The first day is a Sabbath, the last day is a Sabbath. I'm also looking forward to the fact that God is going to provide again. He's going to give more. He's going to give what we need, and I can trust him. So this finally ends the chapter, verse 44, the legacy of Moses' obedience, Leviticus 23. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. That's such a weird statement, right? So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. But you know, it's packed with a lot of information. Why? Number one, Moses was faithful. You know, if God has given you something, if God has placed something on your heart, I want to encourage you, be faithful, be obedient. You never know what difference that can make. You never know how far down the road that simple act of faith and obedience will carry, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's like going to the gas station, you know, putting a gallon of gas in your car, thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll get another 10 miles, and next thing you know, 800 miles later, you're still traveling. Moses' simple obedience to declare to the children paid off how? Well, before the Babylonian exile, if you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 13, you see that Solomon, after the house, the temple, has finally been built. Solomon dedicates the temple, and verse 13 says, And even after a certain rate every day, according to, uh, offering according to the commandment of Moses, on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, on the solemn feasts, three times in a year, even in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles. So now you see Solomon whose name means peace, this, this king, he comes along and he establishes Israel uh, at the greatest, the greatest portion of Israel's history uh, is during Solomon's reign, and they are celebrating the feast. Well, also you have observance in post-Babylonian exile uh, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 4, in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, Ezra 3, 4, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. Nehemiah chapter 8, and they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. So here you have all of this going on. You've got um, before the Babylonian exile, after the Babylonian exile, when they come back, you have this uh, understanding of like, look, this is what God said, all because Moses was faithful to explain this to the children of Israel. But you also have the observance of the Feast of Booths during the time of Christ in the New Testament. In John chapter 5, verse 1, uh, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This was after he met the woman at Samarit in Samaria in chapter 4. And this was a time of ingathering. And so the sort of the connotation is that in, in John chapter 5, verse 1, the feast that they're going up to is the Feast of Tabernacles. Because earlier we saw, we saw earlier in John that he had already been up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. John chapter 7, this whole chapter is just about almost the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 2 says, now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Verse 8, go you up to the feast. His brothers had tried to persuade him to go to the feast. This is very interesting. You should go back and look at this uh, a little bit later on because there are a, a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus as Messiah and they say that he did not fulfill the law of Moses. And they'll try and point to this passage where Jesus, his brothers are telling him, hey, you need to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and tell everybody who you are. Jesus says, it's not my time. But notice in verse 14, 
Now in the midst of the feast, he went up. Um, actually, in verse 10, it tells us that he went up to the feast, not openly, as it were, but in secret. So Jesus did fulfill every single aspect of the law. And that's important. Why is that important? Because if Jesus does not fulfill the law, we're in trouble. Because him fulfilling the law, living perfectly, is part of what makes him the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God that takes away our sins. And so therefore, he had to fulfill it. So I, I encourage you to go back and look at John chapter 7 when you have a chance. Uh, not only that, but we see the observance of this feast in prophecy. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 6, Amos chapter 9, verse 11, and Isaiah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, There shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime for the heat and for a place of refuge. Amos chapter 9, verse 11, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close the breaches thereof. And so we have this illusion, this language, this prophetic language of tabernacles uh, all through prophecy. And then finally, I want to give you another one. In the millennial kingdom, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. These will not be sacrifices for sin, to cover sin. These will be memorial sacrifices, looking back at what God has done. Uh, but specifically in Zechariah chapter 14, there will be a requirement of all the nations. The nations will be required to go up to Jerusalem every year. Every year, the nations will be required. When will they be required to go up to, the, to Jerusalem? During the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, give you the context, verse 9 of Zechariah 14. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But that's the context for what follows. Because in verse 16 through 19, it says, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations, so this is after the tribulation, uh, we've gone through the tribulation, the world has gone through the tribulation, and those who are alive after the tribulation and remain, it says, Those who are left of the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have, uh, they shall have no rain. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It's kind of interesting that Zechariah throws Egypt in there, right? It points our minds back to what's going on here in Leviticus. Why? Because they're coming out of Egypt and God is establishing this feast, this protocol for the feast. So the nations will be required to go up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles to do what? To worship the king. By the way, Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. But we who are believers, you know what the Bible says about us? It says that we will reign with him. And so if you have a relationship with the Lord, um, you are going to go through and be raptured. I'm sorry, you will not go through the tribulation, but you'll be raptured. You will not see the wrath of God, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
or chapter, First Thessalonians chapter 4, I believe. But rather, we will be with him, and so therefore, um, we will be reigning with him. So, how does this apply to me, a follower of Yeshua? What's, what's the point? I want to quote from um, a very good friend of ours, um, Bess Herzakow. She has a website called best.h.com. And um, if I haven't mentioned her before, she and her husband, Larry Herzakow, they are missionaries. They are Messianic Jews. Uh, they are in Israel. They live in Israel. They bring, they host short-term mission trips with the idea of uh, coming in and being witnesses and sharing the gospel uh, with native Israelis. And um, so she has some thoughts about this. She says, since it immediately follows the days of awe and repentance, Sukkot represents the time of restored fellowship with the Lord. In fact, the Mishkan, so the Mishkan is one of the Jewish uh, literary sources or uh, resources. And later, the temple represents God's presence dwelling among his people. Uh, in Exodus chapter 29, verse 44 through 45. The modern observance of Sukkot allows just a few days from the time Yom Kippur ends to begin assembling and decorating the sukkah for the festivals. If the high holy days focus on the Lord as our creator, our judge, and the one who atones for our sins, the festival of Sukkot is a time when we celebrate all that the Lord has done for us. Prophetically understood, the seven days picture Olam Haba, the world to come, and a 1,000-year millennial kingdom age. If Yeshua was born on Sukkot, we won't get into that today, uh, but if he was conceived during Hanukkah, uh, then another and prophetic meaning of the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, John 1.14, foretells the coming millennial kingdom when King Yeshua will again tabernacle with us during his reign from Zion. From Zion. There's a lot of conjecture as to when the Lord was born or when he was conceived, but I just think it's fascinating what, what Bess puts up there, just thinking about the significance of Sukkot. Um, the idea of a tabernacle, a tabernacle being a temporary dwelling place. And, and I want to explore some of that. So let's, let's point number one, Emmanuel. We know, this, we know this term, we know this phrase, God with us, but it also means with us is God. Now, that was one of the names. Actually, that was, his, that was the Lord's name that he never used. Because we see it in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and Isaiah chapter 8, verse uh, 8 through 10, it is a name that once he used it, the moment he would call himself Emmanuel, it would be basically telling everybody who he is. And so he didn't use that name. But anyway, the name Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, the name of the virgin child, symbolizing the presence of God to deliver his people. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8, And he shall pass through Judah, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breath of thy land, O Emmanuel, O with us, God. God is with us. His name is a declaration of trust and confidence. With us is God. Psalm 46, verse 11, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. This festival is the seventh and final festival. Jews were to build booths and tents in their yards. They're supposed to dwell in them during this seven-day festival to remember and commemorate the 40 years that they lived in tents when God took care of them in the desert before entering the promised land. But it also foreshadows when Jesus will once again dwell with his people by tabernacling with us. Micah chapter 4 verse 1 through 7. Jesus has already come as Emmanuel, God with us. He stayed on earth among people 
However, at his second coming, he will reign for a thousand years and ultimately after that, live with his people for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Point number two, as we get ready to close, our present tabernacles are lacking. Would you agree? Our present tabernacles are lacking. They're not made to live forever. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. What is he talking about? What earthly tabernacle? What building? He's talking about our bodies. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, verse 2, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are in this tabernacle, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not that we will be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might not be swallowed up of life. But the key thing that Paul says here is in verse 6. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are at home in this body. Our tabernacles are lacking. Our bodies are breaking down. Our bodies are not um, uh, every day as, as the Lord allows us to live on this earth. We encounter new physical issues. It's just the way it is. But what that should do is it should point us to the fact that, hey, you know what? I don't live in a great tabernacle. I'm looking one day for a tabernacle or a house, a booth not made with hands. And how do we know we can look towards that? How do we know that we have hope for that? Well, point number three, Jesus is preparing a place for us. John chapter 14, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there. Uh, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? No. Verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you also may be where I am. The Lord is preparing a house for us. The Lord is preparing a place for us. Point number four, Emmanuel forever. God with us forever. Revelation chapter 21 uh, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Verse two, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. As we think about the Feast of Booths, it points us to a future reality that God is giving, will give us a house not made with hands, where we will dwell with him and he with us. And point number five, if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, if you don't know Jesus as your personal savior, you are invited to do so forever. Luke chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus says, well, when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. I want you to think about that. Paul says, look upon, look upon the people that were called. Not many mighty, not many noble, right? God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Jesus didn't go just to say, hey, you know what? You're you're wealthy, you're, you're amazing, you're this, that, and the other, I'm choosing you. He went to the poor, blessed are the poor. He went to the maimed, he went to the lame, he went to the blind, he, he sought and saved those who were lost. And so Jesus is doing the same thing. He's saying, look, 
you can have an eternity with me. I'm going to those who are the poor of Israel. I'm going to those who are the poor of the world, the maimed of the world, the lame of the world. This is the feast that God is making. What is this feast? Again, it's a time of rejoicing. God wants to rejoice with us, but he's sending the invitation to all who would hear. Not all who are qualified, but all who would hear and respond. And so that's you today. If you don't have a relationship with God, if, if something's saying, hey, you know what? No, you got to clean your life up before you come to the Lord. No, that's, that's a lie from the enemy. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous and holy before God. In fact, the Bible says there are none who are righteous, none, not one. No, not one. So none of us can make ourselves perfect before a perfect and living and, and loving God. Except God has given us the means by which we can be seen as perfect and right before him. And that is through the blood, the atoning blood of his son, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Because the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's you today. I would just encourage you to call upon his name. I would encourage you to uh, reach out to the Lord because you don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring. And as we look upon our world, we look about how things are just spiraling out of control further and further away from who God is. Now more than ever, don't trust tomorrow. Trust in Jesus today. He's inviting you. He's calling you. He wants you to be a part of his feast. He wants you to rejoice with him. He wants you to know the pleasures of God forevermore, the joy of God forevermore, the peace of God forevermore, salvation forevermore. He wants that for you. And he is coming again. Peter says people scoff. They said, what's the promise of God's coming? Where, where, is, he, where is he at? It's been a thousand years and nothing's happened. But he reminds us, like, look, hey, you know, a thousand years is as a day into the Lord. And a day is a thousand years. You know, for the Lord right now, sitting there prophetically, it was only just maybe a day and a half. At any moment, at any moment, he could send his son. Will you be ready? At any moment, he could call you into an eternity, right? Your life is hanging on by a, by a fragile cord. At any moment, are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you ready to meet God? I pray that you would say yes I pray that you would accept his invitation. I pray that you will walk with him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, for those of us believers, we who have that confidence and that hope, verse 8, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us remind ourselves of this great salvation that we have. And let us live accordingly. And let us bless those in our lives. Let us be witnesses in their lives. Let us be the word of truth in their lives. Let us rejoice. Let us remember the goodness of God, how he has blessed us, how he has sustained us, how he has given us all that we need and more. And let's be a faithful witness of him in this world. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your appointed times. And right now, maybe there's someone right now, and this isn't an appointed time for them, and they 
Lord don't know it, or, or they're sensing it. Um, it could be someone here physically. It could be someone, maybe they're watching online, uh, or maybe it'll be someone watching later on at a later date, and they're watching this message. Lord, you work all, to, all things together. You have a perfect, perfect plan. Uh, Lord, you are amazing and great. You are a genius in how you orchestrate things in our lives, Lord. All these things just so that we will come to a place where we have an opportunity to accept you, where we have an opportunity to recognize the beauty of your majesty. We have an opportunity to understand and say, yes, I am a sinner. I need the atoning sacrifice of Yeshua. So Lord, if that person is here today physically, if that person is watching online, or if it's someone in the future watching this message, Lord God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts right now, Holy Spirit, that you would quiet the dissension, the voices of the enemy that rails up against to accuse them, to keep them in shame, to keep them from opening and surrendering their heart, Lord God. Would you quiet that voice? Would you bind that voice, Lord? And would you, O oh Lord, strengthen that yearnful heart, that desire to be made, redeemed, and refreshed and anew? Lord, speak your truth over them. Sing, Lord, your songs of love over them and bring them into your kingdom. Your word says that just when one is saved, all of heaven rejoices. So Lord, be glorified. And for us, for us as believers, Lord God, help us to walk in truth. Help us to remember what you've done, Yeshua. Help us to remember how great a love you have for us, Father. And help us to follow the example of the Holy Spirit who does not speak of himself, but Holy Spirit, you... In all things, you point people to Jesus. Lord, let us point people to Jesus. It's about what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for saving me. Thank you so much for saving us, Lord. I was a sinner and I had walked away. I was wanted nothing to do with you, but yet you loved me. So thank you for covering us, sheltering us, protecting us, and calling us your own. And Lord, may your face be upon this congregation. May they walk in the newness of who you are. May they understand that you are sheltering them, covering them, and may they rejoice in your goodness. Amen.